Support for On Something comes from Way to Grow, providing growers and gardeners with knowledge and tools for hydroponic and organic urban gardening since 2003. With locations in Fort Collins, Boulder, Denver, and Colorado Springs, learn more at waytogrow.net. Support for On Something comes from the Rodman Law Group, a Denver-based law firm with a global reach. The Rodman Law Group specializes in cannabis, hemp, blockchain, FDA compliance, and litigation. Learn more at therodmanlawgroup.com. From Colorado Public Radio and PRX, this is On Something. When you're staring out the door, you know, and the ground is just like so far below you and then you're just like second guessing everything like, why am I doing this? And also like, who am I doing this with? Like, this is a lot of trust to place in someone's hands. Chris Walker is an investigative journalist and this was his first time skydiving. But he wasn't just there to cross something off of his bucket list. No, he was chasing what may be the biggest story of his career. But so far, no one would talk to him, except for this one guy. Chris thought if he went skydiving with him, it would help him gain his trust. I always try to develop rapport with sources in my stories. Yeah, I'll get a cup of coffee with people I interview <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> I, th- I mean, granted, I usually do too. That's my that's my normal order of business. So this was pretty unusual for me as well. Yeah, wow. He wanted to go first thing in the morning. So that's that's what we did. I rolled up to the jump zone in a rental car. We shook hands and 30 minutes later I'm in the back of a twin prop Cessna climbing up to 14,000 feet and about to jump out a plane with a drug smuggler strapped to my back. Not just any drug smuggler either. He was an avid skydiver who once used his talents to smuggle top shelf weed out of Colorado. In fact, he was part of one of the largest marijuana smuggling operations ever, disguised as part of the legal weed economy. His name, Joe Johnson. A key member of the conspiracy is Joseph Johnson. His out-of-state company, Westside Skydiving, allegedly flew more than 1,500 pounds of marijuana and more than $2 million in cash. And after the trust fall to end all trust falls, he had promised to sit down with Chris for an interview. Chris was following every thread he could to investigate the story of their rise and fall, And the most promising thread of all turned out to be the ripcord of a parachute. It was almost cinematic or Hollywood-esque with these clouds that we were sort of drifting between with sun rays peeking through. (laughs) Oh man, that was awesome. And so in that moment, I, I understood what Joe had been getting at in some of our calls about this, this sort of adrenaline rush mixed by relief, yeah. and you kind of get sucked into this cycle. He felt the same kind of sensation when he was doing these drug smuggling operations. 
This is On Something, stories about life after legalization. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. Today, Chris Walker takes us inside the story of a bold criminal organization disguised as a legal cannabis business right here in Colorado, poster state for legal, highly regulated marijuana. The whole story is unfolding over on his podcast called The Syndicate, and we'll even hear pieces of it here. Chris's show raises a lot of questions about legalization that we tend to ponder on something actually wouldn't exist were it not for America's patchwork state-by-state approach to cannabis legalization. And neither would The Syndicate, a podcast about a network of people who took advantage of that patchwork to make lots and lots of money. Story right now, these 32 people, they're all accused of playing a part in the largest pot bust since marijuana was legalized in our state. The year was 2015, and the state attorney general's office had just announced charges for more than 30 people connected to this organization that was growing weed and smuggling it out of state in massive quantities. The cases stemmed from a bust the year before. The raid uprooted a massive drug ring, growing marijuana here, shipping thousands of pounds of it to Minnesota, and netting more than $12 million over the last four years. When the indictments were handed down, Chris was a staff writer for Denver's Alternative Weekly, called Westward. He wasn't even assigned to this story. He just remembers reading the report that his coworker wrote. I immediately had all these questions about the group. Why would you set up a black market operation in a state where you had legal weed? Wasn't that an insane amount of risk? Mm -hmm. And then also just the mechanics of how this thing worked. They were able to hide in plain sight for so many years. They were able to traffic an impressive amount of pot. And I really wanted to know what were the motivations of the group members Mm -hmm. and what were the dynamics that happened there. Chris listened to over 100 hours of interrogation tapes from the investigation, ended up interviewing about 10 members of this organization, and yes, jumped out of a plane to tell the story of this group, which he nicknamed The Syndicate. Today, we're going to try to give you an idea of how this smuggling operation came to be. And it starts with a guy named Tree Wynn. Somehow Tree had acquired a very good reputation, a solid reputation of being very smart. I don't mean normally smart, I mean genius smart. I was shown how to package the way Tree wanted it done. Tree was a nice guy. He was an incredible dude. I like Tree a lot, honestly. Tree masterminded this illegal growing and distribution network of dozens of people including the voices you just heard. But before all of that, Tree's early exposure to illegal drug trafficking was a lot less sophisticated. Growing up in Minnesota, he cultivated weed in high school and sold it in college. As the child of Vietnamese refugees, Tree always seemed to put family first. And after college, he tried to support them by starting a more above-board business, an LED light company. But Chris says when that failed, Tree saw his next opportunity in Colorado, growing medical marijuana. They were actually a group of longtime college friends and family members who moved from Minnesota to Colorado specifically to hide in the legal cannabis market. 
Growing weed in Colorado allowed them to take advantage of loopholes in the state's medical marijuana laws. Smuggling it out of state to Minnesota allowed them to sell it at a steep profit because it wasn't legal there. In the early days of the operation, tree smugglers were actually pretty sloppy, loading up their cars, stuffing them full of weed and cash, and just desperately hoping they didn't get pulled over on the interstate. And there were some pretty close calls. Chris says after almost getting busted, Tree decided to look to the skies. They were producing thousands of pounds of pot and shipping it out of state, in some cases using skydiving planes for sale in the black market. Enter the elusive Joe Johnson, the skydiver we met way back at the beginning of the episode. I was approached by a couple of different people pretty much from day one. How about we use your airplane to fly out to Colorado and bring something back? It took them three years of asking me. And uh, in 2012, I said yes and made my first run out to Colorado to pick up a bag of plants. (laughs) And uh, it got super crazy after that. By 2012, Joe allowed the syndicate to scale up in a serious way. He could fill a 10-passenger plane full of weed and travel essentially right over the heads of highway patrolmen who were eager to pull over any car with Colorado plates. It allowed them to be almost invisible, at least for a little while. From the beginning, one of the parts of the story that intrigued Chris the most, one of the things that really sets this group apart from other illegal operations, was their ability to hide in plain sight. And as we mentioned, that was possible because of a loophole in Colorado's medical marijuana laws. Okay, so the syndicate was taking advantage of a rule from the very earliest days of medical marijuana in Colorado called caregiving or caregiving rules. When Colorado voters first legalized pot, there were no dispensaries. The state legislature realized that they needed an answer for this as soon as the law went into effect. So they created the caregiver system. And these are private citizens who are allowed to grow a certain amount of cannabis for their roster of approved patients. Medical marijuana patients would get their weed from their friendly neighborhood caregiver. This is very different from just walking into a dispensary and purchasing whatever you want. For starters, caregivers were supposed to be giving away all of their weed to patients. And no one was really supposed to make money off of it. So to put it simply, the syndicate was skimming a lot off the top. That is ultimately what this group took advantage of. This law was still on the books when they got going in 2010. By that time, there were medical dispensaries, but there were so many caregivers, and this side of the industry was growing so rapidly that Colorado's regulators couldn't keep tabs on each and every caregiver. So the the syndicate realized that they could grow as a roster of caregivers, register all these patients who they were giving, quote-unquote, all of their weed to, where in reality they were giving nominal amounts, still fulfilling their duties as a caregiver to their patients, but all the rest of the weed was being shipped to the black market. Even just the word caregiver was part of how Tree was able to recruit people into the syndicate. He roped them in not only with promises of profits, 
but he also told them that they would be helping sick people. Once they bought in, the more questions they asked, the less things added up. Here's one of those recruits. So I'm thinking when he's telling me about the patient model, how much do I give to patients? How much do I charge them? And if I charge them, how do you know how much I sold them? How do you keep track of what I'm selling? I mean, these are all the questions that are going through my mind. I asked him, do I need to report to you exactly what I sold? And he, he said, no, don't worry about that because you don't sell it, you give it away. And I did say to him, well, where, where does money come from? But I didn't get an answer. All of this stuff is important because this loophole is the linchpin to the syndicate. By registering themselves as caregivers, members of this organization could grow huge amounts of pot right under the noses of state regulators. Seriously, they were so confident in what they were doing that they even invited tour groups to come and check out the operation. Here's how it plays out in Chris's podcast. First up, you had fire departments have come in. Um, We just opened our doors. They came in with their black and yellow jackets, which was understandably a little nerve-wracking for the growers when they first saw the inspection. But to their amazement, the firemen just walked up and down the aisles, cracking pot jokes and checking off a list of building safety codes. They had no idea they were looking at a massive black market grow. Neither, as it turned out, did the next round of visitors. Cops and people from the city would come and like inspect our stuff and, okay. Denver police, the cops, who looked at the syndicate's caregiving certificates like they were certified gold. They made it very, very easy to succeed as far as starting an illegal operation. But that's just half of the looky-loos. I remember one time, this is funny enough, a tour bus came by. People from who knows where were jumping off this tour bus, walking through our factory. Like pot tourists from Nebraska. Pot tourists from Nebraska. Disguised as a legit business, they could grow seemingly legal, cheap weed in Colorado and smuggle it out of state to Minnesota, where it was still illegal. What made it all so lucrative was something called arbitrage. Arbitrage is also a movie starring Richard Gere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, arbitrage is an economic term, so um, economists use it to refer to the price discrepancy for the same product in two different markets. And so it really is a way to understand pot trafficking when you're going from a legal market to an illegal one. Think about it this way. You find a beautiful vintage leather jacket at the thrift store for 10 bucks. You take it home and you sell it online for 50 bucks. Next to all the old t-shirts at the Salvation Army, That jacket has a lower value, but online, where it's vintage or upcycled, its value is higher. When it comes to legal weed, this is the exact thing that opponents of legalization warned about. Legal in some places and not others creates an incentive for the illicit market. But Chris says part of the syndicate's plan all along was actually to go legal. Here's one of the founding members. Our goal was always to be legitimate, you know? You're talking about people that had families, people that were starting families. We wanted something to be proud of. We wanted something to, you know, to tell our parents about, to tell our friends about. This was the beginning of something enormous. 
he's just one of many who was roped in by the promise of eventually going legal someday. After a break, exactly how do you go from making money hand over fist on the illicit market to running a legal weed business? Can you? Hey, it's Anne. I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Listeners like you make On Something possible. Hundreds of thousands of people have listened to our podcast since it launched back in 2019. You've been there with us while we've explored everything from CBD to cooking with cannabis to social equity across the entire industry. It is really humbling and I am so grateful. The reporting, the stories told, and the issues explored, you made all of that possible. And if you feel like helping our show, head to onsomething.org and contribute if you can. Once again, thank you so much. The syndicate made around $12 million smuggling weed out of Colorado and into Minnesota, where it was still illegal. They were able to do this by basically pretending to be a legitimate cannabis business in Colorado, hiding in plain sight. But believe it or not, many of those involved hoped that this game of pretend would actually make it easier to go legal someday. You know, if they're so passionate as they were about cannabis, like they actually were kind of nerdy farmers at heart. (laughs) Uh, Why wouldn't you go the legal route? Well, it's it's not that easy. The reality is getting a license to sell weed legally is an uphill battle no matter who you are. If Tree wanted to grow regulated cannabis, he'd basically have to start all over, growing from scratch, because Colorado now tracks legal weed from seed to sale. When you think about the idea of just legal weed in the first place, right, there's all of these people who were up until a point doing something that was illegal, mm-hmm. and and now it's legal, and you would think that you would want those folks to come over and do the same thing legally, right? Yeah. The founders of the legal cannabis industry, anyone who had experience prior to legalization, was by definition... It was a criminal. A criminal. Was somebody who was committing a crime. And actually, they still are in the eyes of the federal government. Yeah. <laughs> so what many of them were able to do is make that transition into the legal market before they got caught or too Mm -hmm. seriously busted. And that's ultimately what the syndicate was trying to do too. But at the end of the day, the risks outweighed the rewards. So no, they didn't end up making that transition, which left the other option, getting caught. In June of 2014, Joe Johnson needed to make a run. The cargo. 60 pounds of weed, and more than $300,000. Except he wasn't licensed to fly a plane large enough for the delivery, something that his bosses didn't know. So he made an executive decision to rent a minivan and drive across state lines. That was the first mistake. Not only was he making the trip high on Coke and energy drinks, but he had two brushes with the cops. The second time, he got pulled over in Kansas after making an illegal U-turn right in front of a state trooper. That time, the officer was suspicious, the car got searched, 
And from there, the whole house of cards collapses spectacularly once they really get on law enforcement's radar. Not long after, Joe became a DEA informant in order to save himself. And then SWAT teams raided the homes of many of the syndicate's ranks, including, of course, Tree. Here's another moment from Chris's podcast, where one of those cops talks about raiding Tree's apartment in Colorado, where they found heaps of hidden cash. And so in this house, there's literally money everywhere. And yeah, there was 20 some thousand dollars found in like the massage pillow you put your face into or whatever. Right, the one with the hole cut out of the middle. Yeah. And then there was another bag of money like that was at the bottom of his, underneath all of his dirty laundry. And then there was a shoebox full of money. And then the one that I remember is we flipped over the mattress and he had like, like one of those sheets that would cover the entire bed. So we flipped this thing up and I was like, dude, what are those rectangles? What is that? And so we cut the sheet off and he had $196,000 that was literally stuck to the bottom of the bed. The whole entire bottom of the mattress was rectangles. In the end, 32 people were charged. 31 people were indicted. The bust made big news around Denver and the country. Now, the syndicate was not the first major pot smuggling ring to get busted in Colorado. And it definitely wasn't the last. It certainly had immediate effects in Colorado in terms of caregiving laws. Mm -hmm. So Denver immediately set limits on the number of plants, as did the state of Colorado. In legislative sessions, both Denver City Council and the state of Colorado referred to this group. And so I think it really raised a lot of concern about how this specific loophole was being taken advantage of. That is closed up in reaction to this group. Mm -hmm. Has it stopped black market trading and dealing in marijuana? Absolutely not. Chris says only five people went to prison, all for fewer than four years. Tree, the uh, mastermind behind all of this, only spent 90 days in prison. This didn't send some kind of chilling message to smugglers. Busts like this still happen even today. What's your biggest takeaway about legalization from this story? I learned that even in places like Colorado, which have among the most mature legal cannabis industries, that we still have a long way to go to combat the black market. We have to really incentivize customers themselves to make the decision to buy weed legally. And then also, I think the lessons learned here can provide a roadmap to other states that are legalizing in terms of what not to do. It really raises the question of what we're doing with our federal resources and why these problems spring up to begin with. This story might illustrate the biggest gaping flaw in legalization as we know it. But Chris says the real flaw is the lack of legal weed coast to coast. As long as you have places where there is only a black market, there is always going to be an incentive to bring illicit marijuana into those states. Stories like this seem to pose the ultimate stress test for quote-unquote leaving it up to the states. And as Chris mentioned, might make the strongest arguments for national legalization. 
Sure, federal drug enforcement can play whack-a-mole until the end of time with each individual pot smuggling ring that bubbles to the surface. Or we can think bigger. If you want to hear the whole story of this criminal organization, yes, there's a lot more to this story, check out Chris's podcast, The Syndicate, on whatever podcast platform you're probably listening to this right now. On Something is a labor of love reported and written by me, Anne-Marie Awad. It's a production of Colorado Public Radio's Audio Innovation Studio and CPR News. This show is produced by Rebecca Romberg. Our editor is Dennis Funk. Music by Brad Turner and Daniel Mesher. You also heard music this episode by Louis Weeks from the Syndicate podcast. Thanks goes out to the whole Syndicate team. Our executive producers are Kevin Dale and Brad Turner. On Something is made possible by lots of talented people like Rachel Estabrook, Demi Harvey, Kim Wynn, Allison Borden, Matt Hers, and Jody Gersh. And our illustrator is Iris Gottlieb. See more of their art on Instagram at Iris Gottlieb. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This podcast is also made possible by Colorado Public Radio members. Learn about supporting Colorado Public Radio at CPR.org. Arbitrage. Arbitrage. I'm telling y'all, it's arbitrage. I'm sorry. Okay, I'll stop. (laughs) Support for On Something comes from Way to Grow, providing growers and gardeners with knowledge and tools for hydroponic and organic urban gardening since 2003. With locations in Fort Collins, Boulder, Denver, and Colorado Springs, learn more at waytogrow.net. Support for On Something comes from the Rodman Law Group, a Denver-based law firm with a global reach. The Rodman Law Group specializes in cannabis, hemp, blockchain, FDA compliance, and litigation. Learn more at therodmanlawgroup.com.